0: My, you know, now deceased grandfather. Uh, you know, maybe he picked up an odd job on a Saturday back in 1980, tarring a roof. I don't know. It, it took him eight hours, right? He made 40 bucks. He pockets that 40 bucks in his jeans. Those jeans wind up in the attic. He, he forgets to pull the cash out because shit went, you know, sideways that day. And and 40 years later, we're cleaning out the attic and we're going through the clothes and we find that 40 bucks. And I think about. What are the life inputs that he could have procured for himself? How many meals, how much gas, how, how many amortized uses of his clothing and shoes, etc., etc., are built into that $40 back then versus now? And, and that eight hours of inhaling tar fumes and sweating, all that suffering that he endured, and they just stole it. And it's not just him. They're doing it to everybody.
1: Hey, everybody. This is the High Hash Rate Podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. And this podcast is just two plebs getting high and talking about Bitcoin, life, and the absurdity of the fiat world. Our guests don't necessarily get high with us, and you don't have to either. But it helps. Here we go.
2: Yo, welcome back to High Hash Rate. Uh, Today, we're talking with Red, who is another uh, listener who reached out to us like many have and many of the guests that we've had on the show uh, have ended up being um red is we're going to talk a little bit about how to get your kids out of the clown world out of the school system if you're so inclined and what are your options and like what can the experience and education of a homeschooled uh or of a homeschooling experience be like uh but first we're going to talk to introduce red and say hello and then find out a little bit more about him so we can learn about this homeschooling these these options
0: i am going, uh, i'm a red, red tail hawk is a a name i was given by a medicine man earlier this year um it fits me really well so i go by that um appreciate you using it uh, yeah, I just I saw your tweet about wanting to talk to real clubs, putting in work, getting a platform to genuine builders around the world, and it's your MO. Um, you know, I, I have something to talk about besides number go up, quantitative easing, and macro jargon. Uh, so I've reached out, and I, in my opinion, you know, Bitcoiners, a lot of them might be interested in homeschooling, and while a lot of us are probably... Uh, naturally inclined to excel in things like math. Teaching is a whole other ball game from acing your math classes throughout school. Uh, I have significant experience teaching using an extremely effective method. I was the math lead at a supplemental enrichment academy. It was an after-school and weekend learning center focused on math, critical thinking, and language. We used neurological profiling techniques to tailor our presentations, instructions, and homework assignments to meet the individual student at their eye level. We once actually even diagnosed a food allergy based on analysis of homework data. Um, I don't have a business set up at the moment, but I've been considering trying to start one up.
2: Is this uh, um, is this system that you use, is is that like how, what you would use in um, if you were to go in and have your own venture? Is that something that you could use? Is it just techniques or is it like a, a specific system that you'd have to have access to? like whether it's I mean, trademarked or copyright, you know, something like that, or does it have to be, can it be open sourced? I guess is the question.
0: Everything I'm saying is totally open source. Um, I'm pretty sure I heard, I'm trying to remember his name, Emerson, something uh, breed love had him on and mm-hmm. dude is all about learning and stuff. I listened mm-hmm. to it. and was like preach. This guy knows what he's talking about. Um, nice. So he, he seems to have, uh, independently found his way to a lot of similar conclusions to what you'll hear me talk about here. So uh,
2: yeah, so previous to teaching or like what what is your background, your educational background, just your personal where you how you grew up, how you ended up to the point where you're at right now
0: well, I had a bit of a genetic predisposition for math and a high IQ especially on my dad's side. I remember my uncle David was kind of a Sheldon Cooper. Um, I was hyperlexic reading at 4. I used to read so much that reading was actually taken away from me as a punishment at times if I misbehaved. <laughs> I was I was 99th percentile my whole life. You know, the math genius boy going to be a millionaire, all, all those things uh I pursued a degree in mechanical engineering before I switched out into applied mathematics. And I wound up getting a Bachelor of Arts in that, but the timing was kind of horrible because I graduated in December of 2007, right into the harsh barren job market brought on by the feckless greed of the Wall Street bankster class and their subprime mortgage bubble monstrosity. I didn't know anything about that for a long time after it happened, but I was definitely collateral damage. I worked multiple part-time jobs and saved money by staying in my parents' basement. It was absolutely humiliating, though. Uh, It got worse when I wound up homeless. Uh, They divorced and I bailed and got a place with a roommate who then proceeded to bail on me. Student loans went unpaid and eventually moved out and crashed on couches or on my cot wherever I could, including in a back room at work or slept in my car. This was around 2010, 2011 time frame.
1: I just got to say, what a
2: disruption
1: between (laughs) those two worlds. Wow.
2: And I want to, I want to get a little bit more on on some of these uh, things that are kind of major events that uh, you kind of brushed over, at, like in a uh, <laughs> and explaining them. But they sound interesting in their own facets. So let's go back to the yeah, reading like a as a four year old, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, when you were young, when you were maybe not even four, but grade school, like what what were you reading? What what interested you at that young age? You're already way against, you know, way further than your peers. It sounds like. So was it, you know, were you reading, fantasy and stuff, uh... or were you reading math, you know, number
0: (laughs) theory? Uh, Anything I could get my hands on. I mean, we took advantage of the they would have like book fairs. Uh, I think Scholastic was the name of the the entity Mm -hmm. and and they wouldn't come and set up an event in the cafeteria or the gymnasium or something. And, you know, you'd get 10 bucks from your parents and they'd come back with like four books and that'll last you a few months, kind of a thing. Or I remember, uh, you know, we would actually use the old school library and I got a library card at one point and did that. I remember, being heavily into like the box car children and goosebumps back in the day. Oh yeah, uh, so,
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, just a, yeah,
2: a, curious like. My birthday's April nineteenth, and my tenth birthday was April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five, which was the day of the Oklahoma City bombing, and I was going. My dad picked me up from school that day, and I went to the library. And I got my first library card uh, on that day, and I rented like Little Monsters, the movie Little Monsters, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, but I just remember like listening to the, the Oklahoma city bombing news on like in the car all the way there, all the way back and, and then back home. And then once we got home, it was on the TV. And it's just like, a, not related to anything. Just like that was my first library card experience at 10 years old. Mm. Like just listen, like that's my birthday. My birthday was soiled by, uh, by the, you know, terrorist attack. I was like freaking out at the time, but anyways, back on point. Um, what made you switch from engineering to applied mathematics? Was it, Did you go into engineering because that was like that's the lucrative path and then you realized you know what like this is all right but i'm gonna go deeper i'm gonna go into like the you know the straight to the source to the numbers to the truth i got a few years deep
0: into it and i liked it but i realized that it wasn't all that i liked and math has a a higher wider umbrella it covers more and so with the math degree I have been an educator. I've done some accounting work. I've tutored and I've done some consulting work. I've, uh, I've got, gotten my way back to engineering. So okay. um, m- my current job is uh, for a, a, I work for a top 50 U.S. mechanical contractor as uh, an energy engineer and mechanical engineer.
2: So, but, after, but after you graduated in, the, in the, the recession, that was not a good time for a brand new mathematician coming out of of college right like you had to you had you were pretty raw in your talents you didn't really have any consulting or engineering experience so this was was this kind of the reason that you attribute to but your struggles uh at that time the the recession and the um the job market or was it was it was it something else when you just didn't know what you wanted to do and and you hadn't figured it out yet
0: Uh, That's a, that's an insightful question because the, it's mostly the former, but a little bit of the latter. Um, I, you know, it's not who, you know, it's not what, you know, it's who, you know, they say it was what matters. Right. I I think that's almost true. It's who, you know, that knows what, you know, Mm -hmm. that matters. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of times, Human resources people making hiring decisions aren't necessarily math brains, and so they don't see the world through my eyes, and so they don't necessarily see the value in someone like me. So, I'm thinking that that might have had something to do with it, but I think primarily it was the economic conditions, coupled with, of course, the ever present catch 22 that you know people green in the professional world. are are saddled with overcoming, which is, well, we want somebody with five years of experience. Yeah. But how do I get a job if everybody wants someone with five years of experience and I have zero years of experience.
2: Right. Um, The, the, the thing you mentioned there about, it's not what, you know, it's who, you know, and especially, you know, knowing people who know the same thing, you know, yeah. You uh, you get what I'm saying? People who know what you know. Yeah. There you go. Um, Do you find that to be another issue uh, in Bitcoin where you're trying to explain to other people what this is, why it's important, and from your perspective, and they just don't get it. And you're like, ah, I got to figure out, I got to find somebody else who gets this.
0: Yes. And the biggest issue I try to overcome with orange pilling people, other than like trying to tailor the orange pill to who they are as a you know unique individual and make it pertinent to them and significant to them, is um, overcoming the trust issue um, by establishing some form of bona fides um, I'm I'm no dummy like I'm not just you know aping into something it's not that I haven't thought about this there's there's something here this isn't just magic internet money this has incredible depth and and reach to it as a topic and so I try to yeah it, it takes a while to establish bona fides with people uh in person or online uh online Absolutely. it's even more difficult um in person, I have a few hacks. I can take advantage of my my math brainiac skills. I can do the human calculator thing. And people are mm-hmm. usually like, oh, OK, you have things to say. I will listen. So
2: nice um, useful. Yeah. So you uh, oh, go ahead.
1: I was going to I'm just curious how you arrived at um, the education aspect of your work. <laughs>
0: Uh, so I got my math degree. I was working multiple jobs. One job was my high school job, which I carried through like college casual status. And then after I graduated, I was able to at least maintain part-time work there. And I went outside on my break one day. I was going to go smoke a baddie, And I saw the, like uh, uh, what do they call them, the sawhorse sign, like a, like a business advertising sign that you would see maybe out front of a business and it was a math and language center. And I'm like, you know, I have no idea what their staffing needs are, but I'm going to go in there. I bet you they have nobody that teaches Go. If you're not familiar with Go, it's like a 4,000, 5,000 year old Chinese board game that I think the origin of it actually is connected to the Great Wall. Um, but it's a very mathematical game, very Cartesian grids you play on, on the intersections as opposed to in chess and checkers where you play on the squares. Uh, so it, it's very uh, appealing for like pre algebra students to learn how to place coordinates on the grid like that.
2: And now, Go, is that, am I correct that? So, you know, AI or whatever you want to call it, their computers, they were able to beat humans in chess relatively quickly after it was introduced, but Go is much more complex despite the, you know, maybe there's more entropy in in Go than chess, but the computers have not been able to, or were not able to catch up as quickly, right? Like that's how much more advanced it is. Is that how you would explain it?
0: Uh, I generally agree with that. I think um, Go is played on a 19 by 19 grid, whereas chess, you're dealing with 8 by 8. And also when you capture pieces on a Go board, those pieces are removed from the board and you have freed up occupiable territory again. So you can replay in the same places. And the game goes until both parties pass their turns. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot more entropy in Go. I imagine that uh, computer learning, it was a much more significant uh, challenge to overcome. I think they might have done it, but honestly, I, I don't pay super close attention to that. But I, I am aware that that was something that they were working on doing at one point.
1: Do you, do you think um. there's a connection between Go and bitcoin oh because I, I that's just something that just came to mind I, uh, well while you're you thinking
2: mentioned... of that I, it makes me think about <laughs> you know one of the things i saw or read a long time ago was that the the potential games played all the actions that could uh, be simulated out ever in a game of chess between two people and how the outcomes could um determined through the moves there's more of those possibilities than there are atoms in the universe um is that right i don't know if i said that exactly correctly but we we can fact check that but yeah i believe so (laughs) and it's um part of the reason that it's such a, a challenge to people it's so fascinating that it's like these strategies there's so many outcomes so many possibilities so many games of chess that could be played and could be mastered that you know if you're if you set your mind to it and you're and you're a uh, intelligent enough individual, like you could come up with these new strategies and games because there's just so many possibilities. You could be a pioneer in that. Um, and I think that there's the power is in the entropy. And I was gonna ask a question that which you just kind of asked in your own way, Mike, when you can try to compare Go to Bitcoin. Was when did you learn, Red, the um the power of entropy? Was it before Bitcoin and, and cryptography, or was it in your mathematical education and uh, practices? And did those two things, or did those not did that knowledge help you come to understand the power of Bitcoin, or was that something later down the road?
0: Great question. Um, I think i I think the foundations for understanding that were laid in my math education. And I think that my personal tinkering with like Excel and just geeking out, making my own budget tracking, investment tracking, spreadsheets, things like that. Uh, I think at one point I, I did an NFL fantasy football, you know, spreadsheet tracker thing. You just, you make what you want, right? It's it's fun to uh, get the thing to dance for you. But uh, no, I, I, uh, I think that the awareness of entropy has accelerated a lot for me recently. Uh, Most often when I run into password restrictions on websites, because I like to use open source password management software and it'll generate passwords up to a really long length for you. And why would you not use the maximum length that you can? But not everybody is, you know, crypto geeks like cypherpunks, like us, and are interested in, in, you know, shoring up their cybersecurity to the umpteenth degree, like we are incentivized to do by the nature of what we hold, Right. right? Right. So I, I think that a lot of times devs on their websites fail to consider me as an edge case, wanting to use hundred character passwords yeah. <laughs> when their limit is like 64 and they fail to state that mm-hmm. on the page. So I wind up having to email them and wait three days and <laughs> that kind of a thing. Right. That's where it's been ringing its head most
2: yeah, uh, it, frequently it's, lately. It's um in the The age we live in right now, and you can just kind of feel the trend of where we're going in the future, that the ability to use empirical or use empiricism, excuse me, to verify that anything you see online, anything you hear is real. Any story you hear, any video you watch, any speech somebody gives, it's becoming more and more likely that somebody, you know, it could be a fake, a deep fake. Mm -hmm. It just could be nonsense. Uh, and there's more of this. It's just going to keep ramping up. And, but you go back to the power of Bitcoin and like we're talking about, and we talked about with Alex Waltz a few episodes ago about how Bitcoin is not a bunch of new technology, a bunch of new um, software with all these new you know, innovations put together that people started using. It's a combination of very basic things that people discovered, you know, and built upon for generations, for thousands of years, ultimately until they got to cryptography and then SHA two fifty six and things like that. But depending on where you are, anywhere in the future, in the past, in time, and in space, Bitcoin and mathematics uh, in general, just the, the 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 subject, can be reasoned about by logical people, and you can come to these conclusions, and you can find these probabilities that you can not necessarily know hundred percent are true in all cases but you can reliably depend on that you know like bitcoin mining is its you know it's probabilistic the amount of hash you have compared to the hash rate um is the your is the chances that you're going to guess a block at any given measurement of those things and you can come to pretty Reasonable conclusions about the verify about verifying information, and I think that people are starting to realize how important that is.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I can put it better than that.
2: Right. So, I, I, yeah,
1: I do. I, I do want to uh, go back to the, the the teaching at home thing because this is a topic that I'm personally interested in.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: I'm. I'm I'm curious as to the the breadth of that. Um, I guess that method that you've discovered or that you've come up with.
2: And uh, what is your sales sort of The, the, the range, range of that. Yeah. yeah like thanks. what thanks. is what? How would what would you say? You know, you say you've got the ability to sometimes uh, like orange people in in, in public because you know what you're talking about. What do you say to parents about why they should consider something like? Good question this that you're offering or that you have an idea for that you think would benefit students, young people?
0: There are a number of times that I can recall off the top of my head where I've, I've made people's eyes go wide as dinner plates and put their jaw on the floor based on something that I said and um, based on some, minute observation we're talking like Sherlock Holmes type thing here right so when new students when parents would have interest in having their kid join our learning center we would do a diagnostic test
1: what age are we talking about by the way what age
0: um so it varies but generally four years three months to four years six months girls are usually early a little sooner for a daily study habit than boys are the the earliest i ever had uh anjana was two and a half years old and i'll tell you she could carry the conversation with an adult at two and a half yeah she was something else
1: yeah sorry to cut you Um, off
0: okay um what was i uh
1: what rant i'm sorry it was a, uh, it was a question of like, why, or, uh,
0: so we do these diagnostic tests and, um, you know, I, I sit down in a room with the student and the parents or parents and a workbook with a wide range of levels of ability, you know, of problems that, span where they ought to be and a little bit before and a little bit after just to kind of check and see how they're doing with their math skills and check for any other behavioral ticks. So let's say, for example, I see this kid uh, writing the numeral nine. They start at the top and they draw their bubble. They loop over the top. They come down around underneath and they come back up to where they started. They don't quite touch where they started though, there's a gap there. And then they proceed to draw the stick downwards and they almost go to the next number that they're going to write down. And then they notice that there's a gap in the nine and they don't like that. So they go back up and they fill that in. That observation right there tells me that kid has uh, an innate sense of what is proper of propriety. They have a a need for completion and that student is going to put more focused effort into their work for me than a student who wouldn't have gone back and filled in that little gap when they were drawing their nine. Um, I've noticed, I remember noticing one interaction at a a going away party for a friend uh, between a brother and a sister. And I asked the, the brother, you're an athlete, aren't you? And I'd known him for all of 12 seconds and his sister's straw about dropped on the floor. Um, it's, it's little observations that betray larger patterns and like archetypes. And that's a huge selling point.
2: Yes. Uh, do, does your methods tailor to a specific archetype or do you have, uh, strategies for, multiple archetypes. So when you notice that person who is more focused, they're more into completion versus the maybe more person that's more has a tendency to do things quickly and half asset. Does that, do you just tailor the education towards those uh, personalities or do you try to focus?
0: Yes, I would tailor to each individual uh, based on their unique neurology. If they're a visual learner versus a visual kinesthetic, like a tactile slash hands-on, your athlete would be a, a visual kinesthetic or your dancer, that would be an auditory kinesthetic. Uh, there's your your pure auditory who might just be kind of sing-songy but doesn't really move their body at all. Um, these things can play in, a, a good example would be uh, the problem seven plus five. A lot of times auditory coders are going to give me an answer of 13 on that. And the reason for that, um, in as far as I can tell, Malcolm Gladwell kind of pointed to it in outliers. Uh, where he was talking about Mandarin and their number naming conventions because all of their single digit numbers are one syllable. But when you get to seven, by the time you're done counting it off, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, then you're on eight syllables. So if you're an auditory coder, there's going to be a bubble in your number line logic, especially if you don't code well visually or kinesthetically, and you were never shown quantity iconically using dots or stars or coins or uh, you know sugar packets at the restaurant, and it was never made real to you. If the only way you were ever look, taught to Uh, do math, you know, at an early age with your parents was, let's see how high we can get this kid to recite sounds that correspond with quantities. I mean, that's no different from having the kid uh, memorize the presidents. It's just a sequence of sounds to them. There's no understanding of quantity and the concepts that underlie
2: that. Is that, is this, is this partially behind why songs and poems are so memorable to people, whereas raw information is more, much more difficult to, for them to like almost index it. It's like, you know, why history was originally passed down through hymns and uh, myths and, and stories and songs until we had like uh, the ability to write history down. Um, is, that, is that related to that where it's people learn by kind of finding patterns in, in sounds if they're an auditory coder?
0: Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, as far as, you know, making memories is concerned, I mean, that's what learning is and you're really just storing sensory inputs. So I think to your point about oral tradition and using, uh, like poems are recited and, and hymns and songs are sung and, and, you know, stories are, are told, uh, orally around the campfire at night, right? Like that's how we did things for a long time. Um, I think that, if I were to ask somebody to give an example of what their strongest memories are, initially they would probably be hit with paralysis by analysis because, I mean, how many memories do you have? Um, but a lot of times I'll offer family feasts as a, a suggestion, and that's usually met, uh, you know, pretty well. Um they seem to agree that they have some pretty strong memories of family feasts. And I think the reason for that is because you're engaging all five of your senses. You're smelling aunt Sally's perfume when, and you're feeling her when she gives you a hug and you're tasting the food and you're smelling it and you're playing with your cousins and hearing them laugh. And like you have five, you know, lanes of, of traffic to draw upon that mutually support one another so I think that uh, we're, we're looking at stronger memories when we use more of our, our senses. When it comes to yeah. most school uh, subjects, you're probably not engaging taste or smell. So we refer to the other three as the big three. Um, a lot of times kids do their work silently. They're looking, they're using their eyes, they're using the pencil. That's, that's kinesthetic, that's tactile. But they're not engaging their auditory circuits, so that's something that we oftentimes ask them to do is to work out loud, to to speak their work in some way. And you mean, of course you, mean we all-
2: you mean instead of pumping them full of Adderall, you recognize they're understimulated and you address it by adding stimulation. Wait, Who would cross Adderall? Do <laughs>
0: Oh, even better than that, we, we go full jujitsu with it and roll with the student if they have a 12-minute window in which they can uh, process and absorb something, then, you know, we advise the parents to roll with that. And if, if the kid put in a good faith work session and is showing signs of saturation with that particular task, then, you know, wait until they get to a good stopping point and then cut the session. Um, You're going to get diminishing returns. They're going to get more uh, wrong answers. They're not going to be focused and they're going to wind up having more corrections to circle back to later as a result of that. So why keep the food on the fire longer than it needs to be there? You're just going to burn it. That doesn't do any good for anybody. It creates a negative uh, feedback loop too. We want positive associations with our work sessions. So if the work session ever starts to go negative, pull the plug, start a tickle fight, move on with life. Like don't let the work become negatively associated. Wait, uh,
1: go ahead. I, I do want to, I want to interject with this question. Do you, So this makes me think about the the current education system. And I was wondering if you could speak to maybe what, the problems or or, or the observations so, yeah. you've made from the current education. System. The weaknesses
2: where it's fail, where it's failing young people.
0: I think we should probably look to the origins of it. Um, I, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Um, he brought back the schooling system that had been generated in Prussia mm-hmm. in like the 1800s.
2: Um, right. Like public education or like mass education was uh, uh, essentially to help young people have skills instead of being farmers and agricultural workers and to learn enough skills to work in factories to be yeah. useful in cities.
0: It was totally designed to be an NPC factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their goal in Prussia back then was to create a citizenry that was of the same general opinion on all major issues of that day and age, and it would produce uh, graduates that were ideal candidates for factory work, government clerkships, or military service.
2: Right. It's uh. It was the beginning of of like universal programming, right? These are called TV uh, programs. You know, they call it programs because it was, right. especially the news, right? Everybody was getting on the same page, learning about the same things, learning how to have the same opinions so they could come together in the city square, or in the urban environment, and work closely together and be productive for the owners of the capital. Yeah, they, they the, teach you yeah.
0: what to think, not how to think.
2: Right. And people became reliant on um, somebody, you know, somebody had to provide the capital for me to be productive. Somebody has to uh, the state has to exist for me to be a bureaucrat and to, to push this thing for the rest of the society. And it was kind of getting away from the working on the land and working on your property and having that immediate feedback of progress and success. Because if you plant something and nothing grows, you fucked up. If you, but when it's successful, when you're able to cultivate your, your own property um, and think for yourself about how to solve the problems unique to you and your property and your situation, um, you figured things out and you got that immediate feedback. It's kind of like mathematics, computer science. If you, if you can code a, a beautiful algorithm or a, a website or an application or business software, you don't need a, a degree from a university that says you can do that you don't, you've done it. You, you can produce the work. It's very cheap and your credentials are shown and you can break that down into, you know, younger children. I would assume that they can go home and solve problems based on what they're learning. You know, they're not just memorizing stats sounds to pass a standardized test.
1: That's a good point.
2: I would, I would say that it's
1: in this driven world. I mean, the fact that we if you're in a even in a two parent system it's uh you know both parents are required at this point to just be working non stop and so finding the time or or creating some sort of uh, curriculum for a child seems you're, so
2: out of reach you're, so you're outsourcing it to the npc factories
1: yeah uh, but almost yeah. by
2: you
1: you're you're sort of forced to in a way just so you can live.
0: That's one of the reasons I felt Bitcoiners would be a natural fit for, you know, this topic is, you know, it helps to have money and time and Bitcoiners tend to be um, the type to question things and buck, you know, the trend. And so I think that a lot of us, especially over the last few years have seen uh, glimpses into the, I would call it public, but, you know, we can't walk in there. It's its really more of a government minimum security childhood indoctrination system than it is an education system. Um, but we've seen what's been coming out of those institutions. We, we have that event going on in the news right now with the the kid. And was it Jaden with the don't tread on me patch on his right. backpack. Yeah. And and they're trying to lie to yeah, us so- and tell us that has to do with slavery. It does not. It has everything to do with unity and trying to, you know, fight back against tyranny.
2: He also had a Bitcoin patch on his back too. Somebody caught nice. that. Um, Did he really? Yeah. Yeah. It was like guns and Bitcoin or something. Um, One of the important aspects, and might kind of touch on a little bit with having the parents work. Um, Obviously, if this is a homeschooling program that you're envisioning, you can't be in all these classrooms uh, helping to diagnose these kids or not diagnose, right? Like identify, I guess, their archetypes and and, and tailor these teaching uh, methods to these individual students. They're decentralized. So how do you make this information available to the parents? And how do you teach the parents how to recognize and adapt their um, methods and way of educating their own children to be able to you know, extend your mind to, for their practical use?
0: Good question. Um, the, the way that we modeled it at the Learning Center is probably what I would generally emulate. Uh, I think that in general, the way that we had it set up was students would come to us once a week for an hour. Um, we would have them do 20 minutes of correcting previous mistakes. Then we would switch gears and have them play with manipulatives, puzzles, games, things to engage their mind, but they viewed it as playing with toys. And then the final 20 minutes, we would do something new, like, uh, a a new concept presentation, a, a, backwards uh, check for mastery in something that they learned a while ago, or perhaps ongoing instruction in a subject that they're working on consolidating into a mastery position. We would plan the classwork for them and we would make our observations. um, And then we would also plan homework for them and write out notes for the parents, look for this, uh, make sure that they read this out loud, make sure they're touching their pencil to this, when they're doing that, you know, just give them very explicit directions on things that we wanted to see happening. Uh, We would typically do the diagnostic tests. And so that would be like an onboarding thing. Um, I would have, you know, my weekly observations of the students, uh, you know, through a a webcam and some kind of online stylus. Whiteboard type of uh, learning application, so I would get some observations firsthand that way. That would be helpful, Um, but mostly I would be relying on the parents. That's uh, what we did at the learning center. We told them that they were our scientific assistants when they were at home and their kids were working on our work. Um, We they. They need to be our eyes, our ears. They need to report anything that they think might be applicable, even if it winds up not being so. This is where the food allergy thing came from was was observations and data taking. So, you, you had a question, Mike?
1: No, I was just I, I was just going to say this. This sounds like something that uh, Greg Foss would get a hundred percent behind, just yeah. because oh, of his yeah. uh, his
2: motto. Uh, yeah, my. Oh, I had another question, which is because we could speak on this episode for like four hours and we're not (laughs) going to cover everything like that would be necessary to cover here. So like, I want to get to a few important points, um, when it comes to the curriculum itself, how, you know, what are the similarities that it might have to the traditional education system? Are you still teaching, you know, English literature, mathematics, uh, classics, history, geometry, you know, all these subjects that people are familiar with. Are you just, are you teaching these in a different way or are you, is it a fundamentally different approach to educating people, you know, age appropriately as they progress through um, to tougher and tougher subjects? Or like, how would you explain that path that these students take and what they're learning?
0: I think that what I can offer is general education, consulting assistance to the parents. Um, I think that, that I think my ability to observe and diagnose and, and develop neurological profiles on the kids, all that's going to be applicable to subjects outside of just math and critical thinking. But I think that I can also offer, uh, as I don't know, call it a, a minor to the major, um, uh, subject specific expertise so, gotcha. in math. They would still potentially need to seek out uh, subject matter experts in other areas. I've I'm pretty well-rounded guy, but like I'm mostly going to be aces sure. when it comes to the math and critical thinking stuff. But so I've done some ACT, some SAT prep. I love etymology. I love word math, you know, So there are some areas where I could definitely go into some other things with them, but I think that's the primary offering.
2: Right. And I think so if I correct me if I'm wrong here, the way I kind of understand uh, how you would be beneficial to parents is that when it comes to history, religion, um, all of these softer subjects these are very subjective. It's very culture, family specific, like the, what, the way that they want their children to grow up and understanding what we would call the social studies and art and values. Those are very personal. And those are generally speaking, what most parents are the most effective at teaching their children and instilling those personal, cultural, traditional, religious, whatever values, when it comes to the hard skills, mathematics, problem solving, critical thinking, being able to use and reason about the physical world and the abstract world and like things that you would use mathematics, obviously, for example, as science, these subjects, what parents struggle with, generally speaking, the most. But it's most important, you know, it's a very important facet of a young person's education. So you're kind of empowering them to teach these harder subjects more effectively and get a create, you know, raise and educate children in a way that allows them to really progress in that and then leave the softer subjects and the more personal subjects to the discretion of, of the parents and the way they want to design a curriculum.
0: Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of times people think that they make the mistake of assuming that, oh, I went through school, therefore I can teach school. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if you've never thought about that before, then, I mean, you're, you're right. You can, you, but you, that doesn't mean you know how, and right. it, it could be extremely helpful. I, I've, can think of one person who i already helped do this with um she's a friend who i met online and she was homeschooling her daughter and it wasn't going well and she reached out randomly for help and i offered her some advice i taught her about you know looking for how long her daughter's uh, absorption window is before she just starts to want to switch tasks where, you know, she starts checking her phone or looking out the window or getting distracted. Like that's when it's time to switch tasks and honor what she's given you and move and, and do something else. It's like that, mm-hmm. uh, P90X workout video mm-hmm. from like 15 years ago, they would tell you to work out one muscle group until you hit muscle fatigue. And then you don't have to be done at that point. You can switch to another muscle group. So you, you do your math for 18 minutes until, you know, you, you hit your saturation point and okay, well now I can take a break and do some English. And that's a completely different area of the brain that I'm working out. And maybe I didn't finish my math and maybe I need to come back to it later and, and do a another math session until I I finish what I need to get done, but I'm honoring my brain's desire to do something different, you know, after that 18 minute Mark pops up and it's, it's not going to be 18 minutes for everything that I do for me personally. I hate cleaning. So I do a little bit of it every day. So it never builds up. And then if it's power tools and and doing like carpentry or building stuff, doing projects, I love that. I'll do that all day long. That's not work to me. So people's absorb windows are different. So teaching the parent how to look for signs that the kid has reached their saturation point and needs to do something else, teaching them how to set up their homeschool overall, but not necessarily, you know, teaching them what to homeschool.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Before we switch gears to get a little bit more about your Bitcoin story, because I think, A, this is a Bitcoin podcast, but B, understanding somebody's Bitcoin story helps listeners and everybody else understand and approach your ideas and your perspective appropriately because if you came to bitcoin the same way that you know they did or if you've got a similar story right like that really helps them connect with you but before we get into that how how do you how this is a very nascent idea that you've got how do you envision that you you will put this program or this business together and and how do, how would interested parents get in touch with you and learn more about this for example you know what What research or what methods can they look up to kind of see where you're coming from and how you've built, developed this program, as well as just more information about any of this that they can read to, if they're more interested and they want to learn more and talk to you about it, how can those people get involved with you? But also how could people who want to help you build this, who might be more interested uh, and maybe could, you know, whether it's investors or just parents who want to be a pilot, uh, tester of of your services. How could can you um, give more information about those things?
0: Yeah, okay. So I guess as far as reaching out to me goes, um, Twitter's fine. Um, I don't really know how to uh, tell you my Noster and Pub. It's not exactly human readable. You can find but, it on uh, your Twitter, <laughs> right? You can find it on my Twitter. Uh, I'm at Redtailhawk one nine two three on Twitter, um, as far as some things are concerned, like s- some things that people can research and that might give them some insight into sort of my methods. Um, and th- this was all kind of g- very grassrootsy. Uh, the center that I worked at, the director of the center just kind of ordered a franchise's worth of materials mm-hmm. and there was almost no uh, instruction to how to use them, so she based it off of the name, which was Nunopi. It was Korean. It meant it meant eye level. Hence, approaching the work from the students' eye level as the teacher to try to meet them where they are. Um, this uh, this the the director of the center had a uh, has an adopted sister who was born with Cree syndrome, which is a severe learning disability that is so severe that people don't even learn how to walk and their heart fails to get sufficient exercise. And they typically die before their teenage years. But that wasn't going to fly with her mother. She worked with her daughter every day. They broke down the walking mechanism, subroutine by subroutine. Today, we're going to work on pointing our toes forward. Today, we're going to work on pointing our toes upwards. Today, we're going to work on bending our knees. Today, we're going to work on straightening our knees, et cetera, et cetera. Left, Left leg, right leg, just went through it ad nauseum. And eventually, she walked, and she is in her 50s, and when they take her to the doctor the doctor does his thing he, you know he has his clipboard in his hands and he backs into the room and he sits down and he, he looks at the chart and he sees creedishaw and he sees inner 50s and he's like what no this doesn't happen the people with creedishaw syndrome they don't live beyond their teenage years you can't be 50 years old and have creedishaw syndrome so this woman is a miracle a- according to doctors but this demonstrates the power of daily study. And that's, that's a core, that's, that's a very important thing. I'll bring up Ebbinghaus. Ebbinghaus, E-B-B-I-N-G-H-A-U-S, uh, had a forgetting curve. He charted how quickly a concept retention would decay in a person over time. And it's, it's shocking, but after just 20 minutes The average person will have lost, I think it's like 30 or 40% of concept retention just after 20 minutes, after 24 hours, you've lost like 70% of it. So that's why you need to refresh the concept on a daily basis, because what happens is not only do you refresh the concept back up to a hundred percent concept retention, your decay rate, it, it gets more, more shallow every time you refresh it with those repetitions and eventually your retention stays very high on the concept and the decay rate is so shallow it's like negligible and that's the goal Um, so working on a daily basis is important and that sounds kind of tiger mom but to be fair if the kid has a 12-minute absorb window i said to honor it so you're not going to burn them out using this method not only that, you're going to be able to get a lot of subjects in because using the P90X analogy, you're going to be rolling from one thing to the next, constantly working out different areas of the brain over the course of a number of hours. So I, I would look up Ebbinghaus, cri uh, uh, think chat something like that. Um, yeah, I, I think... Most of the stuff that we came up with was kind of proprietary. It was our own sort of lingo. I know there's stuff out there that probably supports it and is all proper and stuff. But I guess this is like the goodwill hunting, you know, education model here.
1: And, and do, you, do you bring this sort of model into the world with a, a Bitcoin forward message? Is, does that play a role at all?
0: I would love to incorporate my knowledge of economics and, and Bitcoin into this endeavor. Um, like I said, I'm a, a well-rounded guy. I am not just a math brain. Um, I would actually surprise a lot of people with subjects that I could go on and on about. Um, I think that, uh, yeah. I would love to incorporate that into the mix, uh, make word problems that are about Bitcoin, use Bitcoin, uh, comics to teach, you know, life morals within the workbooks. I'd love to, uh, get a FOSS involved and, you know, work with some Bitcoin artists who want to work on designing a workbook system or something like that. Like that would be amazing. Um,
1: because it seems like such a it's such a difficult concept well for definitely for like the the general public i would say to to understand what this thing is i mean i don't even think i still understand it and i've been doing this you know for four or five years now and it's 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 like i don't even know how you would explain that to children i mean i see these like children's books coming out and i'm uh, I, I like their novelty, like the the I guess I guess it was the Bitcoin Rabbi or someone uh, did this like uh, a a Bitcoin book all with children's illustrations, and I read that to my son here and there. But it's like, does he understand the concepts I'm trying to explain to him, or does he get the story, or or c- can he even grok the the the, the level of, int- of intensity of this thing? I, I don't know. It's yeah, I think we need
0: um good Bitcoin education. I think that education is perhaps the single most important thing in the world. I don't know what we're all doing if we're not, you know, seeking out I mean the meaning of life. Well, how are you going to figure that out without educating yourself and going and exploring things, right? Like education is the most important thing. Um, I mean, if you're Charles Duell, I think was his name, the the guy who was running the patent office in 1889. And you think that, you know, the patent office is probably going to close here soon, guys, because we've we've about got it wrapped up. We've invented everything that there is to invent mm-hmm. nothing else to see here move along. Like, how arrogant is that? I mean, that, you know, the, they talk about uh, the, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Like, what is meek, if not humble? And what is humble, if not, being willing to begin a journey of learning from the lowest rung on that ladder.
1: Mm.
0: Like that people who don't want to learn a new thing, maybe it's because they're just too stretched. Then I get it. But if you have the mental bandwidth to learn something new and you just reject it because you don't feel like learning anything, because that would be hard. That's so weak. You're not, you're not going to find happiness you're not going to find enlightenment you're not going to find peace you're not going to find friends you're not going to find anything that you want in life if you're unwilling to learn
2: Amen. yeah uh, um that's i mean I, that's did, a great... I don't want to end it yet i don't want to no end no it i'm not i'm not i am okay. uh, I wanted to say Because i definitely uh, have
1: a couple more questions but man about, I, I about education to... about
2: education no
1: i mean uh, they're 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 like spin-off questions I mean and I do oh, want yeah. to keep you then yeah be respectful
2: of your time how you don't I'm totally time? down to right. come
0: back to for subsequent episodes if you want to
1: do uh, okay more, well I was just uh,
2: I was just gonna switch gears to ask your Bitcoin story but I wanted to make sure Mike yeah. got. why don't we get question. that why do we get yeah. why don't
1: we get that in there bef- before yeah yeah you know?
2: so all right at what point so, at what point in your life did you come into contact and when did that rabbit hole journey begin and why I'm
0: pretty I left off on my story. I think when I was in my homeless phase, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, it was around 2010, 2011 timeframe, showered at a gym or in single user restrooms at work late at night, make do with what you can even ate expired food or food out of the break room trash. If it was wrapped up and I could still sanitarily get to it in 2011, I finally landed a good job with benefits. I upgraded my quality of life slightly, but not a lot. I imposed pretty severe self-austerity measures, though. I rehab my 579 credit score, up over 800, bought a house, paid off some of my smaller student loans, saved, started investing in mining stocks and precious metals, started learning about a little bit of technical analysis. And then in early 2017, uh, Jack Spearco, host of the Survival podcast, was talking about Bitcoin a lot. I think around April, I was convinced that this was something I should be open to, but I wasn't sure if I was going to get in or not. I opened up a Coinbase account and got the old KYC and bank account connections and all that stuff. So there would be no obstacles in my way if I did decide to pull the trigger. And the second week of May, I remember watching it go from 1200 to 1800, at which point it was Futurama for I shut up and take my money. Uh, <laughs> so i I definitely hopped in to see profits but i was already into you know libertarianism and uh precious metals austrian economics i didn't like the federal reserve i didn't like inflation so i was a little bit primed from from those things um I've learned a tremendous amount since then. Uh, I'm a rabbit hole explorer, so I've probably listened to thousands and thousands of hours of podcasts and YouTube videos. Um, started, I learned technical analysis. Um, I earned a certification in it. Um, met my best friend actually learning TA. Uh, it's, it's been an amazing journey. Um, I, I, I really think that Bitcoin actually is super important on another level too, because it allows people to ascend Maslow's hierarchy of needs and take care of their base survival needs and start to worry about things like love and accomplishments and validation and ultimately things like self-actualization and looking for higher order truths, which I think is something that John Ballas talks about a lot. I think he refers to it as a bitnoia, a Bitcoin metanoia, like a total change of, of mindset um, I think, you know, the, the orange pill, the laser eyes, those are sort of good, uh, ways, Mimi ways of referring to the, uh, adoption of the low time preference, which I think is, is one of the things that motivates Bitcoiners to change their ways and start, you know, eating healthier and when working out and, um, you know, consuming more beneficial content for their brains, uh, you know turning off the the sitcoms and tu- tuning out of the the noise and tuning into the signal
2: oh yeah uh who were like or what were were the the really impactful um, aspects of Bitcoin that really drew you in like some people are get obsessed with the censorship resistance, some people with the technology, some people with you know whatever. What was it that really was the hook for you and was there any uh, any authors I think you mentioned that uh, had a outsized impact?
0: Uh, as far as authors go, I love Brandon Quitham's work. Uh, Bitcoin is the mycelium mm-hmm. of money. And Bitcoin as a pioneering species are amazing works. First uh, episode of pioneering... high hash rate. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, yeah. The uh, I, I'm an energy professional, so you know I, I love that vision that he put forth for the uh, Bitcoin as a pioneering species. Um, sorry,
2: what was the first part of your question?
1: The aspect which which aspect drew you into Bitcoin? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, which so...
2: property feature? the
0: the theft of of our life the, the devaluation of our life energy um I, I think about hypothetically my you know now deceased grandfather uh, you know maybe, he picked up an odd job on a Saturday back in 1980, tarring a roof. I don't know. It, it took him eight hours, right? He made 40 bucks. He pockets that 40 bucks in his jeans. Those jeans wind up in the attic. He, he forgets to pull the cash out because shit went you know, sideways that day. And, you know, grandma eventually passes. And, and 40 years later, we're cleaning out the attic and we're going through the clothes and we find that 40 bucks. And I think about what are the life inputs that he could have, Procured for himself, and 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 how much would that have fueled his ability to earn? How many meals? How much gas? How how many amortized uses of his clothing and shoes, et cetera, et cetera, are built into that forty dollars back then versus now? And and that eight hours of inhaling tar fumes and sweating and and getting sore. And like all that suffering that he endured and they just stole it. Hmm. And it's not just him. They're doing it to everybody. It's it's the matrix. It's economic. And, and it's like I mentioned earlier, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There are higher order things that people can be pursuing during this life. And instead, they're on a, a hamster wheel. And, and, and they they have horse blinders put on them and it's being done by people who know very well what they're doing and they're, they're horrible people. And I just, I, I want better for the world and I, I, I want to understand, I want to be understood and I want to make positive change on the world.
2: Nice. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that, was great. Great. that was great. Uh, I guess to wrap up my questions, um, can you go into a little bit more detail about uh how you got the name Redtail Hawk and, oh, what thank you. Means, I and what that means? What that means that to you? To
1: come in, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the medicine man thing. That's a, that's one <laughs> yeah. of my questions here.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so I guess it starts in. 2017, I met this woman. Um, actually, you know what? Let me me back up a little bit because these are these are gonna be top, these are gonna be important details. My early childhood was steeped in conflict. Parents were divorced by six months old, not amicably, lots of family court, lots of propagandizing me against one another. And of course they both came from Catholic families, which explains the shotgun wedding. My dad wanted an abortion. He even wanted, he even kicked my mom in the stomach at one point while she was pregnant with me. Um, I remember being taken downstairs at grandma and grandpa's house because they didn't want me to see grandpa and dad fighting outside. And grade school was no picnic. Um, I was picked on a lot. I think there was uh, a lot of contempt for me because I was smart um, and didn't know any better Uh in high school, things got a little better. I found some inclusion on my high school racquetball team. I won state in doubles junior year and bronze at nationals in double senior year. Uh, and in both of those games, I took the winning shot. And those are important details because the event that kicked this off in 2018, some people might think that that was a panic attack. That's not me. I concealed carry. I... I don't drop to the ground and start rocking when shit hits the fan. I run towards the gunshots. I'm the one fixing the broken pipe, getting wet. I'm the one who, you know, I don't know. I, I want the ball with two seconds left down by one. I want it. Um, so... I was raised Catholic, but something never sat right with me about the church and the formality and the rigidity and the coldness of it. I stopped going to church week two of college. I dropped back to a position of agnosticism because I, I just didn't know. And that's what agnostic means without knowledge, right? I, I wasn't closed to religion or truth. I just didn't know what it was. And I guess maybe epistemological solipsism in philosophy did a number on me or something. I think that was a formative existential crisis. I always said, though, that whatever I discussed, whenever I discuss the matter with anybody, that if some metaph- metaphysical truth was revealed to me, I would pay attention and pursue the trail. So fast forward to 2017, I meet a very special woman. Um, she's a, a hippie. She's a chemistry PhD student right now. Um, I'm like head over heels in love with her. and um, But due to complications, our relationship is rocky and we would wind up parting ways after her boyfriend decided he didn't like me in her life for obvious reasons uh but we kept bumping into one another um which is easy enough to do when you both play Pokemon Go and you're nerds um she uh she reached out though and she invited me to her going away party she'd broken up with the boyfriend who didn't like me and had picked up a new boyfriend at the time so I was allowed back in her world but she was about to leave and head down to Raleigh uh to the the research triangle where she was going to pursue her PhD um and in the short time that she had left in town, we spent a lot of time together, and she wound up actually breaking up with the boyfriend that she had because he didn't want to go down to rally. and she got back with her ex. However, she put her foot down that I still get to have a place in her life. They moved down there. I visited them in August of 2018. We had a great time. He and I got to know one another, became friends, but that friendship would be short-lived. Um, On September 12th, 2018, they were supposed to bug out of Raleigh to avoid an incoming hurricane. Mm -hmm. I'd been helping plan their bug out and hurricane preparations remotely because I'm a prepper and she was exhausted and anxious about starting her PhD program in a completely new city with only one person she knew, her boyfriend. She had stayed overnight at a classmate's place studying together for a test on the morning of the 12th. And after that test, her boyfriend was supposed to pick her up. They had just the one car and then they were going to get out of Dodge. He never showed, police called her, they found him dead, an overdose, it was heroin. Um, Not only was this bad, this was extra bad because this wasn't her first rodeo, her first boyfriend OD'd on heroin and she was the one who found him. So this was also deeply triggering for her. On top of that, as I said, a hurricane was bearing down and you kind of need to actively execute the task of bugging out, you know, to not die potentially so i couldn't focus i left work i was uh driving around looking for a friend actually it was the director of the learning center that i worked at i I currently work for her husband he stole me away at one point um and i i i I was totally distressed coming from a place of total love and there's nothing i could do about this situation no plane is flying me from st louis to raleigh in a hurricane I'm halfway across the country. I don't have time to drive there. I could do nothing but surrender to the universe and her will. And I was driving down a major interstate highway in the left lane doing 70 miles an hour crossing over another major interstate highway. So it's like literal Robert Frost crossroad symbolism here. You can't make this up. And all of a sudden, in my moment of surrender to the universe, my whole body experienced the sensation of pins and needles everywhere, intensely. To go along with that, I felt a muscle cramp. I think people might refer to those as Charlie horses, but it was in my arms and hands all the way to my fingertips. I've never felt anything like this before or again. And again, I don't think it was a a panic attack because that just doesn't fit my personality. I remember it hurt to try to grip the steering wheel. I couldn't curl my fingers down over them. Um, Mm -hmm and and it was like 10 a.m on a weekday though so traffic wasn't too crazy it was a straightaway it lasted maybe 10 or 15 seconds I, I thought i was gonna die but i i started looking things up i researched online uh soulmates twin flames breathwork, meditation kundalini awakening i even started visiting local temples trying to seek out some kind of guidance uh, the local hindu temple treated me like i was a tourist the local Buddhist temple took me in and heard me out. I started going there once a month for a guided meditation and a lecture, but, um, and like, that was cool because that that was consistent with my worldview. I'm a uh, fairly Zen Buddhist, uh, in a lot of ways, but, um, it didn't really solve my mystery of what happened to me on the 12th of September of that year, driving down the highway. At one point, I even actually had a half hour long conversation with a lady at uh, a concert. <laughs> um, one of the band members actually came up from behind her and like signaled to her, like, Hey, is this dude like bothering you? He's been here for a half hour. Do you want us to like generate an excuse for you to leave? And she was like, no, it's cool. He's learning in good faith. This is, this is good. So, um, in late 2021, I joined a couple of libertarian internet communities. Um, given my background as a teacher, energy engineer and Bitcoiner, I, consider it a responsibility to orange pill because I feel like I'm, you know, uniquely suited to do it. Well, based on my background, um, I try to play angles with people individually, but like, um, if I'm going to be working within a community within a group, then I'm going to try and use some level of, of intelligence there too. I think orange Pilling is a lot like sales. They're both transfer of belief. And I think that salesmen are a good model for orange pillars because we, um, we want to qualify our leads. And I think Liberty oriented people are, uh, you know, a good qualification for, uh, a place to orange pill. So I go to this community, I orange pill. I'm there for probably about a year or so. And then in January of 2023, it's one nine, two, three. That's why the numbers are in my Twitter handle. Um, one member of this community is a native American woman. Uh, she lives out on a mountaintop in California And she is curious to know what her medicine man would have to say about me, uh, me and one other guy. And so she asks us for photographs of our left palms, fingers together, but extended, no metal, no rings, nothing like that. And, um, yeah, she sent them to her medicine man's protege and, she pivoted his message back to me. And he said, the one with long fingers, red tail hawk has a spirit that is always with him. A good spirit. If he has two bad ones. He must purge. That is all. So at first I thought maybe he had seen my username. I'm in St. Louis. I've been a baseball fan for years and years. So red bird, October Cardinals, red birds, October place, uh, playoff baseball month. Right. It's a pun on the movie. Okay, so it's very similar to Red Tail Hawk. Hawk even sounds like Oct, but he did not see my username. I asked her. He knew nothing about me. All he saw was my poem. So oh. I started binging as much content as I could on Native American Red Tail Hawk spirit animal, totem symbolism on YouTube. Eventually, I got to one video where the, the narrator said that oftentimes Red Tail Hawk people are also Kundalini awakening people. That was it. That was my independent confirmation of what it was that had happened to me back in 2018. It was Kundalini awakening. And since then I've been coming to grips with like the truth of things. Um, Like I said, when I was in college, I dropped back into agnosticism, but I always said that if I got, you know, a glimpse, I would chase. Well, I got a glimpse in 2018, but I didn't know what it was. I chased, but I, I I didn't know. I I even researched Kundalini awakening. I, the descriptions that I, I saw, though, just didn't match what I felt. And that actually jives because everybody's is unique. And so everybody's experience is it's going to vary within a certain subset of things. But, you know, my experience may not jive with, you know, 10 other people's experiences had <laughs> the same thing happen to them. So I still have a lot to learn but this experience has shed new light on matters of religion and like the fundamental nature of the universe metaphysics things of that nature i'm no longer agnostic i don't know what i am i don't have a name for it i'm like down with jesus again from what i've been learning about the dead sea scrolls um i'm a conspiracy theorist and are you familiar with pornell's law Uh, Purnell's ironclad law of bureaucracy, basically it states that um, there's two types of people in any organization, people who are dedicated to the mission of the organization and people who are dedicated to the organization itself. And invariably what occurs over the course of time is the organization's ranks are, are filled out more with people who are dedicated to the organization, not the mission, and the organization eventually loses its way. And so after a few centuries, the uh, the church had lost its way and decided that they were going to engage in uh, censorship. They were going to bury a lot of chapters of Jesus's life that revealed roots to Christianity that preceded Christ. So I mean, we, we know from the early years that the kid was special. You got three wise men chasing stars, bringing him gifts. And then he's in the temple at 12 years old out teaching the, the teachers in the temple. Okay. He's special. Right. And and then fast forward 18 years. What? No, there's records. There's records. I'm sorry. You don't start keeping records, you know, in childhood and then just magically stop and it's gone turns out joseph of arimathea who has mentioned in the bible one time is like super important he was a, a uber wealthy tin trader traveled all over the world and like he, he had tin sources in the united kingdom where the druids were uh he, he ch- uh, traded all along the silk road down in egypt so and, and this was mary jesus's mom's uh relative and they'd come to understand how special this kid was he was just absorbing everything his speed of consuming knowledge from the Essene community he learned everything by age 12 13 it would take decades normally to learn so yeah they sent him out with Joseph of Arimathea To go learn from the Druids, to go learn from the Buddhists, to go learn from the Egyptians, to go learn from the Rishis and the gurus and the mystics in India. So like when when you look in the Bible and you hear Jesus telling his disciples to be wise as serpents and peaceful as doves, as harmless as doves, I think he said, um, the references there are symbolic. Kundalini is depicted in Indian tradition as a serpent. It, that's what Jesus was talking about. The, the dove, that's a reference to the third eye. That's a reference to enlightenment. The Buddhists have records of a, a holy man named Esau coming from Palestine 2000 years ago, who learned the ways of the Buddha and achieved enlightenment. And they wrote about it in Pali. They don't write about it in Pali unless it happened. Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that That's a sacred text to them that came right. from the area where Buddha originally came from um so a lot of traditions apparently cross streams in jesus which is like kind of awesome he's like peter petrelli from heroes if you remember that like he was just collecting <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know all these powers and then it's doctor who yeah and, and the the, the what well, you got the burning of the library at alexandria you got the romans uh basically propagandizing the ignorant masses against the druids declaring that they were you know witch doctors and they were doing human sacrifices none of which was true um these were you know revered sages within their community and basically in the name of power and control a lot of truths seem to have been buried over the course of time like Mm. i said I, i i don't Profess to know the answers but i'm starting to figure a lot of stuff out and a lot of this stuff just makes a lot of sense um so I, I really
2: to rethink things yeah
0: yeah to, to put a bow on this and and link this all back to learning and education i think that enlightenment is education i think that uh in in buddhism they talk about enlightenment as the gateless gate and they say that no i can pass through that gate. It, you have to, your ego has to die. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, what were we talking about earlier with learning it when you, it's an act of humility to set yourself at the lowest rung of, of an area of study and start climbing. Cause you, like, you, you know, yeah. so little you, you, you might as well be a baby at that point. Um, So when you are finished with that journey, if you're ever finished with that journey, but let's just say that you are for the sake of discussion, it's a lot like the caterpillar and the butterfly. You come out of that transformed. You're not the same you that went into it. You're a different you now. And, you know, Jesus said what it's it's, uh, easier for a A um, camel to pass through
2: yeah, and the the eye of a
0: needle. why? Because rich men can be arrogant. They're not yeah. always, but they can be. Why? Because Wait, they've hey, had success.
1: What's the saying? I, I'm, a, I'm I'm oh, the Jewish one here. So you have to tell me. It,
0: it, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's and I right. believe, I, I believe it, he's talking about enlightenment as the kingdom of heaven there. And wow. I think he's pointing yeah, out yeah. the arrogance of, of you know, and, yeah, of course how, they don't want to learn,
2: right? Like they don't want to learn because they think they've got it figured out, right? Uh, so they don't they don't humble themselves and and yeah. get put themselves in the mind state to become enlightened. And I yeah. think, uh, th- yeah, to wrap this up, I just wanted. It's kind of funny because it made me think of a tweet that I put out the other day in response to somebody else, and that, the question was, uh, was what's the difference between finding Jesus and finding God? And my response was, I consider finding God to mean having your ego dissolved and coming to grips with the world as it is and accepting your mortality and i consider quote unquote finding jesus about sacrificing your ego thinking about thinking beyond yourself and discovering your purpose and also ultimately accepting your suffering and i, I love think all that, that those yeah so yeah man i it sounds like we'll have to have you on again to get into some of the oh, hell yeah, metaphysical sure. um because you've got a lot more to say than just education in Bitcoin, but it's been a great conversation. So, uh, absolutely. I've fantastic. enjoyed it. Let us, let us let, let the listeners know once again where they can find you and just, uh, how they can interact with you and definitely learn more about, uh, these educational opportunities.
0: Yeah, just come find me on Twitter, uh, at redtailhawk one, nine, two, three. I don't have a business set up yet, but, uh, it's something that I'm interested in moving towards. So. Reach out to me if you're interested to invest or get my services and, and see how I do for your kids in your homeschooling, or even if it's not for homeschooling, if it's just for your uh, regular education, you want some supplemental instruction and tutoring, I can do that. Whatever's clever.
1: Thank you, right. Red. Thank Thank you. Thank you. I'll cut it. Thanks again for listening to the High Hash Rate Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at High Hash Rate, or you can hit up Dan... At Heartland Bitcoin, H-R-T-L-N-D Bitcoin. Or myself, Mike, at Rundance Bitcoin. That's all one word, Rundance Bitcoin. If you're a fellow pleb or you just want to shoot the shit with two high Bitcoiners, reach out to us.
2: Holy Toledo!